Heavenly Father, we do come before you now and we give thanks to you for your righteous laws. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would help us to see the holiness once again of your word, that it is set apart from all other writings. It is not the words of men, but it is ultimately the words of the living God. There are many writings available to us today. There are newspapers, there are magazines, there are books out there that we can read and spend time meditating upon. But Lord, we pray that we would see your word as holy. It is different from every other book in this world. And so, Lord, we pray that we would meditate upon it this morning with great profit as we listen to your voice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through John chapter 9 together and looking at this miraculous event in the life of Jesus and in the life of this man who was blind from birth. We've seen that the disciples first raised the issue with Jesus about the man's sin and then Jesus uh, heals the man as a display of God's glory in the man's life. And then the man has been brought to the religious leaders for their investigation into the matter. And we started to see that last time, that he is brought to the Pharisees and they are asking, how did this actually happen? How did this happen that this man who was born blind has actually been healed? And so they ask the man about his healing. And we see this in verse 17. We're up to verse 17 of John chapter 9, and I encourage you to have a Bible open before you. And so they have become divided over the fact that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. We see that in verse 16. And so in verse 17, finally they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. They've heard from the man how his eyes were opened And now the issue is, what do we do with Jesus? What do we understand about Jesus? And so to find out what we should understand about Jesus, who Jesus is, this man who can heal the eyes of a man who was born blind, they turn to this man and they ask, what have you to say about him? Because the Pharisees have become divided over the issue, as we saw in verse 16. Some say that he's a sinner. Uh, Others say, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? And so what does the man have to say about Jesus? He said a lot about Jesus previously, about Jesus' action in healing him. What does he have to say about who Jesus is? Not what Jesus has done, but who Jesus is. And we see his reply in verse 17. Verse 17, the man replied, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. Now, why would the man say that Jesus is a prophet? Well, it's because prophets were known to be ones who could do great acts, great signs, great miracles to authenticate that they were indeed sent by God with a message from God for the people. And we saw that earlier in the reading that we had from Second Kings chapter 4, Second Kings chapter 4, where it speaks about the great works that Elisha was able to do. And Elisha wasn't the only one. Elijah and Moses were also known as great prophets of God who did great wonders. And we saw that in the opening psalm that we read. We heard about the miracles that were done in Egypt long ago by Moses, a prophet. And Elisha is an example of a prophet who did great wonders. We only read one of them, uh, the incident with oil just continuing to come, continuing to flow. But if you read through Second Kings chapter 4 this afternoon, uh, which would be a great exercise on your Lord's Day that you have granted to you by God, you will see that Elisha did other miracles within that chapter. He raised a dead boy, he cleansed water, he fed 
a hundred men from a small amount of food. And these are things that we know of the Lord Jesus as well, that he raised people to life, that he fed people from a small amount of food. And so this miracle that has been performed by Jesus is connected immediately by the man to the fact that Jesus must be a prophet. If he can do these wonderful works, if he can open the eyes of a blind man, then it is logical to conclude that he is like Moses, he is like Elijah, he is like Elisha. He is a prophet from God. And so that is what the man says in verse 17. The man replied, he is a prophet. Now, what is the response of the Pharisees? What is the response of the Pharisees to this affirmation from the man that Jesus is a prophet? Well, we see in verse 18 that they still do not believe that Jesus actually did the miracle itself. Verse 18, it says, The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. The Pharisees here, these Jews, they are seeking to prove that the miracle never actually took place. If we can prove that this man was never born blind, then of course there is no miracle to be done by Jesus. He can't open the eyes of someone whose eyes are already open. So we'll disregard the testimony of the man, we'll disregard the testimony of his friends and neighbours and people who'd seen him begging previously, and what we'll do, we'll get more witnesses in. We'll get his parents and ask them, is this really your son and was he indeed born blind? And that's what we see in verse 19. Verse 19 of John chapter 9. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? These religious leaders are seeking to have the miracle of Jesus totally undermined by the parents coming in and saying, no, this is not our son, or yes, this is our son, but he was not born blind. No, he's been able to see all his life. And then we see the response of the parents there to these questions and also to the Lord Jesus. Verse 20, the parents are replying to the questions asked by the Jews. Verse 20, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. They're quite happy to answer the question, is this your son? Yes. They're quite happy to answer the question, was he born blind? Yes, he was born blind. But they're not happy to answer the question as to how this man can now see. They say, how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. And what is their suggestion to the Pharisees of what to do? Speak to him yourself. He is of age. He can talk for himself. He has maturity. Listen to his testimony about what happened to him. Now, why would his parents do this? You think about the situation. Their son was born blind. The struggle that that must have been for years for them. They're obviously not very wealthy. Otherwise, they would have been able to support him. Instead, they've had to send him out to beg, to provide for himself, It would have broken their hearts, I'm sure, many times to see their son begging, to see their son born without the ability to see. And now he can see. Wouldn't they be interested as to how that happened? Wouldn't they be thankful to the person who was able to do that for their son, that their son no longer has to sit and beg 
but instead can actually work for his meat. Wouldn't they be delighted? But instead, they claim ignorance. They do not know what happened to their son, and it doesn't seem like they're very interested in affirming anything to do with the Lord Jesus. Now, why is this? Well, we get the answer given to us by the Apostle John in verses 22 and 23. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age, ask him. Why don't his parents acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the prophet, as their son has acknowledged? It's because of fear. They're afraid of the Jews because the Jews had already declared that they would discipline anyone who affirmed that Jesus is the Christ and they would put that person out of the synagogue. It is fear of man that has caused the parents to not delight in Jesus Christ and what he has done for their son. So what can we learn from these verses of these responses of the Pharisees and the parents here to the healing of the man. Well, although the healing hasn't taken place for us, we are confronted by the miracle of Jesus here. We've been looking at this passage and seen again and again that the, the narrative is actually an illustration for us, a metaphor of how God has opened our eyes, that God gives light to our eyes, that we're dead in our sins when we are born, but then God marvellously opens our eyes to the truth. But also, as we look through this passage, we're confronted by the miracle of Jesus Christ in physical healing. Yes, we've been looking at how there's a spiritual meaning behind it all, but we have to acknowledge that there's a physical healing that has taken place here, and that although it hasn't happened to us, we are confronted with the question, did this actually take place? And who is Jesus if this did take place? And so we can see by the responses of the Pharisees and the parents of how some people respond to this miracle, to the miracles of Jesus generally, but also to this miracle in particular where Jesus healed a man who was physically blind. And people still respond in this way today. Nothing has really changed. People still respond in this way, and it's very edifying for us, I believe, to look at these responses that people have to Jesus' miracles even today. What is the first response that some people have? Well, deny the miracle altogether. Deny the miracle altogether. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They did not believe that the man was born blind. And if we can establish that the man was never born blind, then Jesus never opened his eyes, and therefore we don't have to acknowledge anything about Jesus because he's just like everybody else. He hasn't done anything miraculous. He hasn't done anything marvellous. He's certainly not a prophet. We don't have to listen to him if the man was never born blind. And so today, when people hear about the fact that Jesus did a miracle, like this one, a marvellous act, they don't believe it. They want more witnesses, just like the Pharisees did. The man's testimony is not enough. The testimony of the friends and neighbours that had seen him begging wasn't enough. They had to get the parents in and testify as well. And that's the response of people today. When they hear about Jesus opening the eyes of a man born blind, they say, didn't happen. Didn't happen. And I can get people to testify that it never happened. The first people that I can get to testify are, are medical experts. I can get them to testify that putting saliva and dirt together, mixing it around, putting it on someone's face, and then getting them to wash in a pool isn't going to give them sight. 
I can get a medical expert to do that, to testify, another witness to testify that this did not actually take place. It is impossible. And if I really want to make sure, I just have to find my nearest blind friend, spit on the ground, make some mud, put it on their eyes, send them to wash and see what happens. I can do my own little experiment of one. I'd suggest you do that on a friend if you're going to try that out. Don't grab any stranger on the street and spit on the ground and make some mud and put it on their eyes. I don't think they'll be very appreciative. But you can find people who will certainly testify that this did not take place. It could not take place because it just doesn't happen. Mud does not have healing properties in that way. Some people do think that mud has healing properties. They'll go and bathe in certain springs and put certain types of mud on their cleanse, uh, on, their, on their skin. But when it comes to opening the eyes of people, I don't know of anyone that thinks that mud has that kind of healing property. And they won't stop there. Yes, the doctors will testify that this doesn't happen, that this could never have taken place, but they'll also find experts, so-called experts, about the scriptures that will say that what we have here in the scriptures is no real difference from a fairy tale, that the Bible isn't a valid testimony, that we can't listen to the testimony here about Jesus and what he did in healing this man, that don't you know the Bible, it's full of archaeological errors, it's full of contradictions, it's full of corruptions in the text. We know also that there's other Gospels that aren't included in this book that talk about Jesus and and they give a true and accurate account. There's no contradictions in those Gospels about what Jesus actually did. And so these Bible experts are brought in to testify that this book that we have before us and this account in John chapter 9 as to what Jesus did so many years ago, it's not actually true. And so no man was healed, which means we have nothing to do with Jesus. We can easily ignore Jesus and go on with our lives. And so people do this today. There are people just like the Pharisees who just look at the miracle, they look at Jesus, and they say, miracle never actually occurred, which means I can wash my hands of Jesus. I don't have to consider whether he is a prophet at all because there was no miracle that occurred. And then there's a second response that people will have, and that's the response of the parents, the response of the parents. The blind man's parents accept that a miracle occurred, but they don't trust in Jesus. They don't believe that he is the Christ. They don't believe he is a prophet like their son. Otherwise, they would affirm that Jesus healed their son. And why is that? Well, we saw it's because of losing relationships, the loss of relationships that would happen, that they'd be kicked out of the synagogue and they would lose their social contacts they lose their status in society, and people may not be friends with them or have to do with them any longer. And this is a response that people still have today as well. People have the response of the Pharisees where they just deny the miracle, and so then they can deny Jesus and not have anything to do with him. Other people are happy to say, oh, well, I, I don't really understand what's going on here, and yes, maybe a miracle occurred, but I'm scared of what will happen if I affirm that Jesus is the Christ. A miracle may have occurred, but for me... My fear of man dominates, and I am scared of what my social network will be like if I start to affirm that Jesus is the prophet, that Jesus is the prophet that was sent into the world, that I should listen to him, that he is the Messiah, the Christ that God sent to save people from their sins. I know what will happen to me if I affirm who Jesus is. People will not like me anymore. And people may even do harmful things to me. 
Now you may say, does that really happen? Is that a valid fear that the parents have here? Is it a valid fear of people today? Yes, it is. When you become a Christian, people do change in their attitude towards you. Particularly in certain countries, it can become actually a lethal decision that you make, that you put your life at risk. I read a few years ago an excellent book by uh, Mark Gabriel called Jesus and Muhammad. Jesus and Muhammad. And he goes through and speaks about the differences between uh, between Jesus and Muhammad. And he's well uh, versed in who Muhammad is because Mark Gabriel was actually a devout Muslim who grew up in Egypt and went on to earn a doctorate in Islamic studies. And then he taught at Al-Azhar University in Cairo, the most prestigious Islamic university in the world. So he was actually a lecturer at this university. And then what happened? He became a Christian. He became a Christian, and he actually gives, at the beginning and the end of the book, uh, sandwiched in between is all that he has to say about Jesus and Muhammad, but at the beginning and the end, he speaks about what happened for him to become a Christian and the response of people to his conversion and the subsequent events that took place once he became a Christian. And I'll read for you just a little bit from this book as to what happened after he became a Christian and how he behaved and how people behaved toward him. He writes, For the next year I lived as a secret Christian in Egypt. I did not tell my family what I had done. I had a hard time finding a church that would allow me to attend services. I went privately to three different pastors who told me that I was not welcome in their churches. I finally took a taxi to a monastery far in the desert outside of Cairo. It was so remote that I thought they would not be afraid of the secret police in the city. A monk met me outside the walls of the monastery and told me the same story. We can't help you. But he gave me the name of one more pastor who might help. The next day I went to that church. The pastor was very tough at first, trying to make sure I was honest. He did accept me, and I attended that church cautiously for a year until I left Egypt. I say the word cautiously because I was careful not to draw attention to myself. I took a bus to to church instead of driving my car to avoid being followed by radical Muslims. I did not tell my story to members of the church. Large churches in Egypt usually had an Egyptian policeman serving as a security guard at the door of the church, and until the policeman got used to seeing me, I concealed myself within a large group of people when I went in and out of the door. See, the thing is, he was so known within the Muslim community because he was this great lecturer that he had to hide the fact that he was a Christian for fear of what people would do to him. And then he continues, It was only a matter of time before my family found out. One day, completely unplanned, I blurted out the truth to my father. Immediately, my father pulled his handgun out of his shoulder holster and fired five bullets at me. Within days, I left my home and Egypt permanently. This was the beginning of a long journey that took me from Egypt to South Africa and finally to the United States. Mark Gabriel knows what it is to become a Christian and the loss of relationships. He lost all his community networks. He had to move to a whole other country. Even his own father fired a gun at him to kill him for becoming a Christian. Now, you may say, oh, but we're not in a Muslim-dominated country. Is it really a valid fear that people have here in Australia that if they affirm that Jesus is the Christ like the parents were thinking of 
when they considered what had happened to their son, is it really a valid fear that people would have in Australia that they may lose relationships? Well, the answer is yes. Many relationships are lost if you become a Christian in Australia. You can lose relationships at certain churches that do not affirm that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is God himself. They will kick you out. Certain cults that you may have grown up in and and love the community there, they will immediately expel you from their community. Certain social groups, certain people that you play with, you may play soccer or other sports with, They may not welcome you back onto their team any longer once they find out that you're a Christian. And other social groups, friends, family, work colleagues, you may lose relationships with those people. People don't accept your invitations to catch up anymore or even your calls are ignored. Now, you may not think this is true, but if you do not believe this, I can point you to a few people after the service who can affirm that once they became a Christian, they lost relationships that people were not interested in them anymore, that they were expelled from certain communities because they acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ, that he had done this miracle so many years ago and that he is the prophet that was sent into the world and is their saviour. So the first thing that we should consider as we look at these two reactions, these two responses that people have to Jesus and his miracle here is are we or are you like the Pharisees here today? Are you like the Pharisees that no witness is good enough to affirm that Jesus did a miracle? No witness is good enough. Because that is the case for many people. It doesn't matter who they bring in. The Pharisees, they had the man, they had the man's neighbours, they had people who knew him. It wasn't good enough. They needed the parents as well. And they still did not believe, as we'll see in subsequent verses, that Jesus was the Messiah. And for certain people who denied the miracle ever took place, no testimony is good enough. And is that the case for you here this morning? That no testimony is good enough. You may claim, oh, if he'd made a video of his healing, then I would believe. But there's all kinds of videos up on YouTube about all kinds of things and they're not necessarily going to convert you to their cause. I watched a video this week on YouTube of a, a UFO sighting, and it has 20 million views. 20 million people, or 20, some people may have viewed it many, many times to try and verify it. 20 million views of this UFO sighting. I viewed it. I'm not a believer, I'm sorry to say, that it was a UFO And I'm sure you may say, if there was a video of Jesus healing this man, then I would believe. But I'm sure if I showed you that video, if there was a video out there of it, you'd just dismiss it as fake. And you might do it quite smugly. Ah, yes, that's fake. And so until you see the video, you may say, oh, I would believe that if Jesus had done it in our time, While YouTube was around, then I would believe. And I declare to you that I'm sure if I showed you it, you would declare it a fake. And you may claim that if you were there when Jesus did it, if you were there at that time, you would have believed in Jesus. But you look at the Pharisees. They were there at the time and they did not believe in Jesus. You may say, oh, well, if it happened to a family member, someone that I knew who was born blind, then I would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. 
But look at the parents in the passage. It was their son. And they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so the thing that we should learn from this passage is that some people, whatever testimony they have given to them is never good enough. And why is that? Well, it's because unbelief is not overcome by testimony, but it's only overcome by the work of the Holy Spirit on someone's heart so that they actually believe. Unbelief cannot be conquered by man and throwing more and more witnesses and more and more testimony and videos or whatever it may be that you think would help someone to believe. It's only overcome if God opens the eyes of a blind person to who Jesus is so they accept him as their Messiah. Or the other group we can look at this morning and ask ourselves this morning and ask, I ask you here this morning is, are you like the parents? Are you like the parents? You know Jesus did a miracle. You can look at this and say, all right, it seems to make some sense. And I think, yeah, okay, well, Jesus did something many years ago. But I won't accept him as my Messiah. I won't accept him as the Christ. I won't accept him as my Saviour because I know that people will treat me differently. People might think badly of me. People might say things badly to me. People might do things to me. And so I will not affirm Jesus as Christ. If that is you, once again, I cannot remove that fear because it's a valid fear in many respects that people will treat you differently. That fear can only be removed, once again, by the Holy Spirit working on your heart, that God opens your eyes to who Jesus is and it conquers the fears in your life. So if you're here this morning and you see yourself in the Pharisees or you see yourself in the parents in their responses to Jesus' miracle, I want you to recognise how foolish that response actually is, how foolish it is. You're like someone who receives a letter telling them that they have received a marvellous inheritance, a wonderful inheritance, a very large inheritance that will bring much blessing into their life. And what do they do? Well, if they're like the Pharisees, they say, I think this letter might be a fake. I'm not sure it's true. I need more witnesses before I will accept this inheritance. I need to verify this and I need to verify the people who verify that this is a true, rec- true letter about my inheritance. And you just keep on wanting more and more testimony before you will accept that this inheritance is for you. Or you're like the parents who get the letter, marvellous inheritance has been left to you and you say, oh, all that money, oh... It'll change the way people respond to me. People won't want to come round and see me anymore. They'll think that I'm too high and mighty with all my money. Do you know what will happen? People will want to rob me. Or they may even kidnap my children and send ransom letters to me. It'll be terrible to have that big inheritance. I don't want it. Too many things could happen to me. It's not a good thing. Look at lotto winners and all the terrible things that happen to them when they get a big inheritance, when they get a large sum of money. I don't want that happening to me. And so you ignore the letter and you're not interested in it. What foolishness. What foolishness to want more and more witnesses 
to struggle with these fears and let them prevent you from inheriting such a wonderful, marvellous wealth that comes from someone. And that's what's happening if you do not trust in Jesus as the Christ. If you ignore his miracle here, out of fear, out of a desire for more witnesses, you're foregoing a wonderful inheritance that Jesus offers of eternal life in paradise with him. You're foregoing that out of fear and unbelief that desires more witnesses. So don't be foolish. Trust in Jesus today as your Messiah. Don't let fear get in your way. Come to him and trust in him. And if you are a Christian and you have accepted that Jesus is a prophet as the man did so many years ago, then I encourage you to remember these two responses that are given in the text and remember that there's really only two things that you can do for such people. First thing is you can pray for them. That's the thing you need to do for them. Because remember, it's only by God's grace that they will have their eyes open to the fact of who Jesus is You need to pray for them. And secondly, keep on telling them that Jesus did the miracle and that he is the Messiah. Even if they ignore you, just keep on telling them. Keep on telling them that Jesus is a prophet. But he's more than that. He's the Messiah who takes away their sins. Yes, you can pander to their demand for more witnesses. You can if they are wanting more and more testimony that the Bible is a reliable book, it's not a fairy tale, then you can do that. And there's lots of excellent apologetics books out there that you could uh, look at to help you to authenticate the words of Scripture. Uh, When it comes to contradictions and errors and uh, corruptions in the text, then maybe a good introduction is this book by Lee Strobel, The Case for the Real Jesus. It's available in the church library if you'd like to borrow it. Uh, The Case for the Real Jesus by Lee Strobel. Very helpful, a very nice introduction, easy to read about, uh, he goes around, this is a a journalist who became a Christian, going around interviewing Bible experts on the Bible and verifying that the Bible is indeed a true and accurate record of what Jesus did. Yes, you can share that with people who are demanding more witnesses. Yes, you can do that. And when it comes to people's fears about following Jesus. Yes, you can talk to them about it, talk about the wonderful things that Jesus does offer them. You can talk to them about the community that they will be able to have in the network of Christians around them. You can talk to them about that. Yes, you can't say that no one will uh, hate them for what they've done, because there are people who will hate them for what they've done. But you can talk about the benefits of Christianity to try and alleviate some of those fears, but ultimately you can't remove those. So you can do those things. But realistically, we have to remember that the only thing that will awaken someone to the truth of who Jesus is, that he did that miracle and that he is the light of the world, he is the Messiah, it's only a work of God on their heart by the Holy Spirit. And so we need to just keep on affirming who Jesus is. That's the number one thing we need to do. Well, firstly, pray, I said. Secondly, Keep on affirming who Jesus is with that person. And one day, just one day, God may open their eyes to who Jesus is. God may open their eyes. They can't open their eyes. They're blind. It's like telling a blind person all the ins and outs of how to do eye surgery and saying, now you know, I've told you how to give sight Now go and do it on yourself. They can't do it. It's foolishness. 
But God can. God can open the eyes of the hardest of hearts. And one day he may do, for those people that you keep on praying for, those people that you keep on sharing that Jesus is the Messiah, one day he may open their eyes. And when that happens, they don't need any more witnesses. This is enough. This is enough. They don't need any more witnesses. And when that happens, no fears will stifle their faith. It doesn't matter what happens to that person, they will continue to be a Christian. We see that in Mark Gabriel. He had all kinds of fears, but he kept on. Why? Because God had opened his eyes to who Jesus was, and he loved the Saviour and would do anything for the Saviour and keep on following the Saviour, even affirm the Saviour to a family who would be violent towards him. And that happens when God opens their eyes. When God opens their eyes and they see who Jesus is, they're not scared anymore of the loss of relationships because they have a friend in Jesus and they will cling to him for all of eternity. Let's come before God in prayer. Let's speak with him now. Lord Jesus, we praise you as our prophet, our priest and our king. You are our miracle-working Messiah. And Lord, we thank you for opening our eyes to the salvation that we have from sin and granting us faith in yourself. But Lord, we ask that you would use us to tell people about you. And Lord, we ask that you would then grant them faith to trust in you as well. Oh Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes to who you are and what you've done by dying in our place so that we can live for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.